Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mohammed Gabaldeen, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly about his new book, Asphalt, A History. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly is currently Professor Emeritus uh, in History at the University of Alaska, Anchorage, and instructor at the Milwaukee Area Technical College. He is the author of a half dozen books, including the book today uh, that we have a we have our uh, it's our honor to to discuss uh, asphalt a history. Uh, some of his other work includes racial matters, the FBI secret file on Black America, Nix's piano presidents and racial politics from Washington to Clinton, and he, as we'll hear about uh, at the end, uh, he is currently working on a book tentatively titled Milk Wars, The Dairy Farmer and the American Dream. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is great. It's great to have you. Uh, so, Kenneth, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, that is, where you were born and raised, uh, where you went to graduate school in particular. Uh, our listeners are very much interested in how scholars became scholars how you became interested in asphalt, and how your training as a historian and previous research slash teaching informed the current history project at, on asphalt. Sure. Uh, I started out in New York City. I was born in a Misericordia Hospital, um, and we, uh, my family took Harz Greeley in reverse. Harz Greeley said, go west, young man, but my family went east, so we went from the city of Manhattan out to Long Island. And then eventually uh, we moved out to, to Michigan and I went to college at University of Detroit. I went there to play basketball, all, all things, but it only lasted one year. And then I got interested in history. I had a really good teachers as an undergraduate. And then uh, graduate school at Marquette University, Jesuit school in Milwaukee. And then um, on to University of Alaska. And we, My wife and I, we thought that'd be a great adventure, and it was. It was a big adventure for me, even more so for my wife. She was a flight nurse up there for about 10 years. Um, now, in terms of my um, uh, academic training, I was fortunate enough to study under two great historians, and both of them have recently passed away. Uh, uh, Paul Prugan, one of the, the deans of uh, history, the history of federal government relations with American Indians. And then Ethan Theo Harris, who uh, one of the 
primary scholars on the history of the FBI. So I had, I had really good training. And my earlier work was, was strictly political history. I did a history on the, the FBI's role in, in McCarthyism, and then the FBI's role in um, um, the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and, and, and other books. And then I, I decided in the internet age, uh, the, the competition in, in book publishing is just fierce now because the, the internet has forced a lot of uh, publishers and bookstores out of business and uh, political history, which is what I do primarily, is especially fierce in competition. And so I decided, well, I'm now retired from the University of Alaska and moved back to Milwaukee. That's that's where I did graduate school at Marquette. And for fun, I'm teaching at a technical college, Milwaukee Area Technical College. So I looked around and I thought, well, how can I combine uh, three things? What I'm good at, political history, with a technical college topic. And I came up with asphalt. And so I could merge political history, a technical college topic, and also environmental history. And uh, we'll talk about this later, I'm sure. And, and asphalt is a, is a big hook to uh, Wisconsin as well, because uh, a million barrels a day of natural asphalt comes right through Wisconsin uh, for upgrading into synthetic oil and then processing into gasoline, which is just an environmental horror story. And so I sort of lucked out in in picking asphalt as a topic because it hooked into my new career as a technical college teacher and um, my new location in Wisconsin. Very nice. Uh, And uh, it it just seems like definitely the political um, history background uh, rides through uh, the story of asphalt, and we'll get into that. Um, uh, through the uh, as we go through the text, um, so my my next question is pretty basic. Uh, why is asphalt important? Well, asphalt's important because it's uh, like right now in twenty twenty one because it's one of the central features of our, of our environment, our, our what the uh, environmental historians call our built environment, and so. For example, not all roads are paved, but most roads are paved in the United States, and over 90% of paved roads are paved with asphalt. And that's true in in most of of the rest of the world as as well. Most paved roads are asphalt. And it's not just paved roads. Uh, In North America, asphalt shingles are the the dominant roofing product. So between roads and shingles, uh, asphalt is just part of our environment. And then you can go on from there. Most parking lots are asphalt. Now, yeah, of course, there are concrete parking structures, particularly in the, in the inner cities, but uh, most parking lots are just flat, like at malls, open space, and those are asphalt. Uh, tennis courts, basketball courts, outdoor playgrounds. And so asphalt is it's basically everywhere. It's ubiquitous. And Thus, it's it's one of the principal features of our, our built environment. But it's something we ignore, something we take advantage, um, and we we tend to overlook it. And just you know, it's there. It's something. If we do notice it, we tend to despise it. 
when it's brand new, you know, it's kind of beautiful. Fresh asphalt is perfectly smooth and all that, but eventually under the pressure of traffic and load, it it cracks and becomes ugly. And, And so it's something we need, but it's something we also despise. And thus it's, it has a duality to it. It's part of our environment for both good and bad. And an example I give in the book, um, Asphalt uh, can create enormous environmental problems because it interferes with the ability of water to get back into the ground. It reduces floodplains and thus exacerbates flooding. And so in in that respect, you know, it's, it's, it's really horrible, but it's also has advantages. Asphalt is a fossil fuel, but it serves as a carbon sink because we don't burn roads. And so an asphalt pavement, is never going to be burned unless there's some sort of catastrophic accident and a little piece of it might burn. And so that means it's it's not going to release CO2 into the atmosphere. Instead, it's a carbon sink. It takes a fossil fuel and prevents it from being burned. And and so that's good. And also in terms of transportation, if, if you have a heart attack and you're, you know, 40 miles away from a hospital, Having a paved road as opposed to an unpaved road uh, might be mean you you live or you die, because in an unpaved road you don't get to the hospital as fast. Whereas a paved road you can do forty miles in an emergency and you know thirty minutes. But if it's an unpaved road, that forty miles might take you sixty minutes or seventy minutes. And so asphalt has this this constant duality about it. It's very useful. It's very helpful. And yet it can create real environmental problems at the same time. Thank you. Uh, so, Kenneth, I was hoping you could paint a picture for our listeners about the difference between naturally sourced asphalt and the refined version. And how did refining of uh, how did the refining process of asphalt change the ability to lay asphalt uh, out faster? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a key issue. And it basically, uh, asphalt as it exists in nature and asphalt that is produced as a byproduct of oil refinery, they're both natural. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why. First, asphalt in nature, the most famous example that most Americans are aware of in the USA of asphalt in nature would be the La Brea tar pits. And the La Brea tar pits, you know, they did trap prehistoric mammals. And if, if any of your listeners have ever um, visited, right, you know, the woolly mammoths and the saber-toothed tigers and all that, and they get trapped in there and dire wolves, and, and then their skeletal remains get fossilized in, in the asphalt. Now, they call it tar pits, but they're not, it's not tar, it's asphalt. Asphalt is a natural substance. It exists in nature. Tar is not uh, a natural substance, and so they're called tar pits, but that's misleading. And so the La Brea tar pits are basically uh, formed by migrating oil, and it it basically, uh, well, to use simple terms, it basically dries out. And the example I like to use is is a jar of peanut butter. And at room temperature, you you know, you can take a knife and you can spread the peanut butter around, but it's really thick. Now, if peanut butter at cold temperature, you know, might be thick as a hockey puck. And peanut butter, if you heat it up, you can turn the jar over and it pours right out. Okay. That's a good way to understand asphalt. Asphalt is basically oil that has lost oil mass. 
And so in nature, what does that mean? Uh, bacterial Bacteria feeding on oil and other natural degradation processes bleed off the lighter fractions. And what's left is gunk. And that's what asphalt basically is. It's a very, 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 very heavy oil. Um, and that, another way to explain it is by, by pour point. Oil existing in nature, if you can pump it out of the ground, it has mobility, right? You can pump it out. Asphalt, you can't pump it out. You have to either mine it like they do up in Canada, or you have to heat it or dilute it with chemicals so you can get it out of the ground. But again, it's all a fossil fuel. And the thing about asphalt in nature, you can, after you mine it or melt it out of the ground, you can also chemically upgrade it to synthetic crude oil. And so, you know, on a technical level, that's really fascinating. Now, that that's not my area. I'm not a chemist or an engineer, but as a, a layperson in that area, that's just fascinating. So that's natural asphalt. And the two biggest deposits of natural asphalt are, are both in the Western Hemisphere. And one is up in Canada, the Alberta. They're called tar sands or uh, oil sands. And the uh, oil industry refers to that as bitumen, B-I-T-U-M-E-N not natural asphalt, but it's the same thing. And the other big deposit, huge, of natural asphalt is in Venezuela. And Venezuela has uh, what the oil industry calls extra heavy oil. And much of that oil has no mobility in the reservoir when it's underground. Uh, but some of, some of it does have mobility. So in Venezuela, you can pump some of it out, but a lot of it, you can't pump it out. You would have to heat it to get at it. But Venezuela is kind of irrelevant because their oil industry has collapsed and they're not uh, pumping much heavy oil or natural asphalt. But in Canada, uh, the, the, the natural asphalt business is just, just actually absolutely gigantic. Okay? And it, again, it creates just environmental horror stories. All right, that's natural asphalt. It exists in nature. The La Brea tar pits, the uh, oil sands or tar sands up in Alberta, and then uh, much of the oil in, in Venezuela is actually asphalt. Now, in refineries, uh, asphalt produced in refineries is a little bit different. If you take a barrel of oil, a barrel of oil has all sorts of things hiding in it, and that's what the refineries do. They, they find those things hiding in a barrel of oil, and they separate them through the refining process. Um, and technically, what does that mean? They separate uh, oil, a barrel of oil into fractions. And the most valuable fractions are things like gasoline. But after a refinery is done refining a barrel of oil, you have leftover gunk at the bottom. Uh, the Koch brothers, and all political people and environmentalists are aware of the Koch brothers. One of them is now deceased, so there's just one of them left. But they made their fortune basically on what they call uh, uh, garbage crudes. Garbage crudes, meaning garbage crude oil. And that really means the gunk at the bottom of the barrel. And that gunk can exist in nature, or it can exist after uh, an oil refinery is done processing a barrel of oil into valuable products. So what's left over? Really thick stuff. And the thickest of the thick is asphalt. And you know it's thick because it doesn't begin to boil till about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit. 
So that's pretty thick. And so what do the refineries do? Beginning with John D. Rockefeller back in the late 19th century, well, they just threw it away. But Rockefeller had the bright idea that you could use this stuff to pave roads. Because uh, before the refineries start, started selling uh, their waste, and that's what asphalt was for a refinery, it's just waste. Before they started selling it to road pavers, most road paving in the U.S. and elsewhere was done with natural asphalt. Asphalt hacked out of the ground and then, you know, melted and processed and they used it to pave roads. And and for the U.S., most of that was done in Trinidad and Venezuela because they had these enormous asphalt lakes. And you could literally go walk on them with an axe and chop out asphalt chunks and put them in a basket and put the basket on your head and carry it to a tram. And it would be taken to uh, a boat and would be shipped to the USA or to London or wherever. And so initially, when we started paving roads with asphalt, it was asphalt hacked out of the ground. But then the oil industry started rising up in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And they started selling their waste product, asphalt, to road pavers. And that was a much more efficient way to pave roads because with refinery asphalt, you could manipulate it chemically much easier. You didn't have to remove uh, sticks and twigs and other junk as you did from national, natural asphalt, including what animal bones uh, and once in a while human remains too. So it's just much more efficient. And so... We used to pave roads exclusively with natural asphalt dug out of the ground, hacked out of the ground, and then that went the way of the dodo bird. That that just stopped, and we started using uh, refinery asphalt. But asphalt's a tricky – the word itself is tricky. There are like 200 synonyms for the word asphalt around the world. And another thing is what we call asphalt pavement, blacktop pavement – it's actually asphalt concrete pavement because in a road surface, a blacktop road, it, that's 95% crushed stone aggregate, and it's only 5% liquid asphalt. And it's the same thing, by the way, with the, the plain old concrete. Plain old concrete is like 95% crushed stone, and it's 5% cement. And so for an asphalt road, the binder that holds the tiny rocks together is liquid asphalt. And for concrete, the binder that holds the tiny rocks together is um, cement. And, you know, a lot of lay people, you know, mix, mix that up. And again, I, in terms of engineering and chemistry, I have a PhD in history, not as an engineer, as a chemist. So in this sense, I'm a, a lay person, too. So it's just kind of fascinating to, to, to learn this stuff. No, I agree. And it was fascinating for um, me to learn it uh, as well as I read your text. Uh, and I think that the readers would really uh, appreciate, uh, really should really appreciate the amount of detail that you go into to uh, to make those distinguish, uh, uh, distinguishing characteristics between uh, the different types of uh, as- or naturally occurring asphalt, refined asphalt, and uh, what's used in yeah. blacktop and, yeah. and if, concrete. If I roads. could add something there. Sure, yes. Every oil field in the world, the oil is a little bit different chemically. 
And the same thing with, and in other words, some oil, when it's pumped out of the ground, it's practically gasoline already. It's very, very light. And other uh, asphalt that's hacked or melted out of the ground is very, very heavy. Up in Canada, it's thick as a hockey puck. Whereas other oil is almost gasoline when you take it out. And it, like we all know about fracking, right? And fracked oil is very, very light. But And so there's no precise... Uh, exact chemical definition of asphalt, just like there's no precise chemical def- definition of oil. There's a range of, 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 of chemicals involved in oil and asphalt and all the, the weights of oil from very light to very heavy. And again, a lot of that uh, depends on, you know, which oil field you're, you're pumping it out of. And even in countries like Saudi Arabia, it has a tremendous amount of oil you can have pretty big variation in the type of oil, even in one country, because you have more than one oil field. No, that's exactly it. And I think that's uh, what your book uh, really uh, does well in illuminating. Um, uh, so my next question, historically, how was asphalt used prior to the 19th century? Uh, it seems asphalt has areas of high demand and the periods of little use besides as a sealant. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and basically there's, you know, the ancient world and the, um, the, pre, the prehistoric world and the ancient world. And then asphalt uh, is very little use until the modern age. So it's, it sort of falls out of use. And I basically tried to present asphalt as, as a basically as a tool of empire, a tool of imperialism. And the um, the ancient world empires all used it, especially in the Middle East, and to a lesser extent uh, in North America, the, the Native American empires used asphalt to a, to a degree, but much lesser degree than they did in in the Middle East. And so it's essentially a tool of conquest in, in a certain sense. And so in like in ancient Babylon, um, asphalt is used uh, for construction, um, you know, bricks and for building temples and housing for the rich and things like that. In ancient e- Egypt, uh, during the last couple hundred years, when of mummification, mummification, asphalt is widely used. It's not widely used for mummification purposes for much of uh, the Egyptian uh, dynasty periods. But during the last 200 years, it's, it's used extensively as a preservative, uh, you know, to keep the, the damp and the bugs out. And not just for uh, mum, mummification of bodies. Asphalt's used in some of the to- tombs of the pharaohs. It's painted on objects to preserve them. And so they... Um, they end up being, you know, black in effect. And some historians think um, that in ancient Egypt, that symbolized the, the soil of the Nile, right? The, that rich, fertile black soil. And that's one reason um, the, the dynasties in ancient Egypt may, maybe embraced asphalt because it was also black. Yeah. And so early on, yes, you have asphalt as a commodity um, in the Middle East, in the Dead Sea especially. Um, that's the center of the asphalt trade because in the Dead Sea, you had a lot of seismic activity thousands of years ago. And, the, and earthquakes could send up asphalt chunks. Now, that still happens in the Dead Sea today, but the asphalt ch- chunks today are usually like splinter size, teeny tiny. 
But back in the ancient world, an asphalt chunk could be as big as a football field. And you could sail out on a raft and jump on this giant floating asphalt chunk on the Dead Sea and hack out pieces and, you know, sell it, put it in the trade routes and sell it to the embalmers in, in Egypt. It was always a valuable commodity. And also, I'm do political history. They fought wars over this um, with uh, ancient uh, emperors and, and so forth, trying to control that trade and, you know, Historically, we all hear about the frankincense and mirth trade and all that, but asphalt was part of that as well. And so in the ancient world, it's like, wow, it's used for um, um, many, many different things. And even before the ancient world, there's some evidence that, you know, asphalt glued uh, the first arrowhead to the first shaft. Now, we don't know that for sure, but there's some evidence there. And so asphalt is just is plain useful. Some cultures uh, use asphalt to make casts. If you broke your arm or you broke a leg, uh, you want to immobilize it. And asphalt could make a cast. And so there are all sorts of, um, you know, really unusual um, uses for asphalt throughout history. Now, once you get past the ancient world, yeah, asphalt, you know, it, it kind of fades out of existence. Not, or, or I shouldn't say existence, fades out of use. It's still used, but not very often. And you have some strange stories in there, like uh, the, the use of uh, what they call medicinal mummy uh, as a, a cure for whatever ails you. And sometimes uh, black mummies. And what do you mean by black mummy? A mummy that turned black. And they thought any mummy that turned black, it, it's because it had been coated with asphalt to keep the damp and the bugs out. But that's not necessarily true. Uh, you, uh, mummified remains can turn black for other reasons. But some of those mummies, yeah, they did turn black because of asphalt. And it, it just seems so strange by today's standards, although maybe not. People are taking, you know, horse dewormer to combat COVID today. But people would actually grind up mummified remains and use it as medicine. And... Um, there is a pecking order in what is the most valuable type of mummified re remains. And, you know, mummified remains that have been coated with asphalt was seen as pretty valuable. And so that's just strange. So I have about eight pages in the book about uh, the use of asphalt in the mummification uh, process in ancient Egypt. And then later in the medieval period, all the way up into the beginning of the modern period, people were using um uh, mummies coated with asphalt and grinding them up and using them for, for medicine. And that was actually a big business. And in that particular area, that, that also got hooked up into anti-Semitism because people were claiming that, that that whole use of mummies, medicine, which strikes as cannibalism, right? Uh, that the Jew, Jewish people controlled whole all of that trade. And so you have, you know, a snapshot of the history of anti-Semitism tied up into this as well. Now, when does asphalt become really, really uh, widely used? With the dawn of the pavement age. And the whole history of how to keep mud and dust down, you know, how to build roads so we don't have dust clouds when it's dry and dust is a form of pollution. And how we don't have, what, roads that are impassable because you have two-foot ruts when it rains. Uh, 
uh, or roads that are impassable when it's cold because, you know, you, you have the mud and then it freezes. And so you have to wait till spring till the road thaws out. How do you solve those problems? Well, the ancient world tried to solve them. The, the Romans were the great builders of the ancient world. But humanity doesn't really conquer mud and dust until they start. humanity starts using asphalt to pave roads. Now, we've paved roads with concrete, too, absolutely. But that's, concrete is the world's largest construction material by far. But in terms of paving roads, no, concrete is a, a little brother to asphalt. So once we start paving roads, uh, asphalt is just, it becomes basically a huge part, again, of our built environment. Now, having said that, as we move into the 20th century and into the 21st, you still have all sorts of weird uses for asphalt. Just really strange things. That's fascinating. And I think that's really interesting how, depending on the period uh, asphalt has uh, has a, a different interest, uh, and, um, and and the whole mummification or, or, or grinding up or making dust out of the the mummy uh, that period is almost right precedes the pavement age, or the, so it's it's it, you see it's uh, multiple uses or or multiple. I, uh, identify, identifiers uh, right at the same time or overlapping almost. Uh, but my next question, uh, this kind of takes us a little bit more uh, into imperialism and maybe a little more about the political history that you, you dive into, um, in particular related to war. And if I may say, it appears that the military-industrial complex um, that developed during and after World War II in America, and before that even, with the French and British uh, colonialism and empire, were spaces where asphalt technologies and the material were tested, and its various uses refined. Could you briefly div- uh, dive into the part asphalt played in war and empire, and how those lessons learned were then brought back to the U.S. in particular? Yeah, yeah well... I- yeah, that's a very good point, a very good question. And see, if you look at all of uh, Amer- America's wars, U.S. wars, uh, going back to the Spanish, Spanish-American War, we always sent asphalt with the troops. Now, it, it, there's not much we, paving done by our military in the Spanish-American War, and there's not much paving done um, in World War One, but there is some. But by the time you get up to World War Two. The amount of asphalt that we our military uses in fighting the Axis powers, right? Hitler in Germany, uh, Tojo in Imperial Japan, and then Mussolini, the fascists in, in Italy. The amount of asphalt that we send abroad with the troops is it, it's incredible. It's, on D-Day, right? Our soldiers land and they fight on Omaha Beach, but we also sent thousands and thousands of fifty-five gallon barrels of asphalt with the troops on D-Day. Now, on D-Day, we sent everything else, too. We landed paper clips, we landed typewriters, we landed, you know, Wonder Bread, you name it, we sent it. But what is striking is the sheer volume of asphalt. And the reason we sent it with the troops is we have to move our jeeps around, our tanks around, our trucks. We have to uh, allow our airplanes to take off and land. And so the amount of paving uh, we did 
in World War II is, is just enormous. Now, the paving itself is, is, is extensive after D-Day in the Atlantic Theater, but that amount of paving is actually teeny tiny to the amount of paving we did in the Pacific Theater. So we could bomb Japan, Japan's the islands they held. We could bomb the areas of China where the Japanese army was, and eventually bomb the Japanese home islands. And so we turned many islands in the Pacific basically into gigantic runways. And you would have uh, B-24 and other bombers uh, taking off while an asphalt roller is rolling down 30 yards away, uh, smoothing out a brand new runway. And so you could have like on one island, you could have like 24 runways and they would be, planes would be taking off like every 60 seconds. When I say planes, I mean heavily loaded bombers. And so uh, Navy CB construction workers, Army Corps of Engineers, uh, World War II was in in many ways an engineer's war. And without asphalt, uh, the war would have been very, very different. Our war in the Pacific is a naval war and a bombing war. And uh, airplanes, they need pavement. And you sure the, the British, by the way, the British combat combat engineers wanted to pave all runways with concrete. Concrete lasts longer than asphalt, but you can pave with asphalt really, really quick, and it, it, and you don't have to wait it for it to cure or anything. You wait a couple hours, and you can take a, a B twenty four can take off. Whereas concrete, it's a lot slower and a lot more expensive, and so we paved with asphalt. And the amount that we did, I, I just can't even comprehend it. It's just so much. And and by the way, it, whether you're in the Atlantic or the Pacific, it, it could be just mind-boggling. For example, under the Lend-Lease program, we sent a tremendous amount of aid to the Soviet Union. Yeah, they were communists, but they were our allies because they were willing to fight the Nazis. Right. So what did we do? We shipped uh, just a tremendous amount of airplanes from Montana and Minnesota up to Alaska. And then Russian pilots ferried those airplanes to Russia to fight the Nazis. Okay, so what do you have to do? You have to build runways in Alaska. You have to build airports in Alaska in order to get this done. And so we built hundreds of these things. Uh, and in Canada, too, right, to ferry airplanes up from Montana, Minneapolis, Minnesota, to Canada, and on to Anchorage, and then to Siberia. And in Siberia, they had to do the same thing. And so we pave, 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 and it's just incredible. Now, we also sent, when we say to the Soviet Union, on ships across the Atlantic. And we would get, the when we say, near the Soviet Union, but it would be unloaded and it's still far away from the Red Army. So what did we do? We not only shipped when we say to cross the Atlantic Ocean, we then paved asphalt, we paved roads across Iran to truck the aid into so that the Red Army could get it. And so it's just absolutely mind-boggling. And then, you know, at the end of the war, uh, one of the atomic bombs, um, the casing seams, asphalt coated the casing seams. And so asphalt is a, is a tool of war, tool of conquest. And it doesn't stop. In Vietnam, the main use of asphalt 
was not runways, although they paved a lot of runways in Vietnam. But the main use of asphalt was road construction. Okay. And then you go on to other American wars, like in Afghanistan and, and um, Iraq. We did, again, a tremendous amount of paving. And in Iraq, we paved for two reasons, to get our military equipment around, but also we paved to keep the dust down, which, of course, is a losing battle because of sand and windstorms and all that stuff. And in Afghanistan, the George W. Bush administration got into its head that if we can simply pave roads, uh, we can get the Taliban under control. And of course, that didn't work. And by paving a road, it allowed the Taliban to move around quicker. And so the use of asphalt in in warfare is just, just, just utterly enormous. And, and by the way, the enemy did the same thing. Nazi Germany... Uh, Hitler didn't use asphalt because he was not an asphalt devotee. He was a concrete guy. And so the, the um, German uh, roads, the Autobahn, they paved that with uh, concrete. But the idea is the same. You use roads for what military purposes. And by the way, after World War II, uh, the Autobahn got rebuilt. It got paved with asphalt. It's over 90% asphalt today. And so in terms of military use, it just... Asphalt is incredible. Now, there's a document published annually by the, by the Pentagon, the Defense Department, and it's called the Base Structure Report, B-A-S-E, the Base Structure Report. And what that is is a real property inventory of all the property uh, the Defense Department owns around the world. And we've got like 800 bases in a couple hundred countries around the world. And we got additional secret bases, but we don't need to talk about that right now. So on the cover of uh, one of the base structure reports, you have fresh blacktop and a uh, asphalt roller to smooth it out. And so that tells you, I mean, as a visual image, right, you have an asphalt roller on the cover of the base structure report indicating, you know, how many, how much property we own in 800 military bases around the world. And the Pentagon counts property uh, vertically and horizontally. And so an asphalt road that the Pentagon owns in Germany or wherever, or Vietnam, and an asphalt parking lot that the Pentagon uh, owns, those are all called linear structures in the base structure report. And therefore, um, and almost all that stuff is paved with asphalt. Thank you. And I think your text really does a great job of illuminating those uh, those connections. And I was just uh, blown away about the amount of asphalt that's transported across the world for these war efforts um, yeah. from one place to another. Yeah, and, and um, let me interrupt just for a minute. I apologize. But oh, an easy way to understand this is using an environmental angle. Okay, the USA, the United States of America, what is our environment? And this sounds kind of harsh, but I think it, it, in many ways it's fair. Bombs abroad and cars at home. And for bombs, most of them are dropped out of airplanes. And you need runways. And most of the runways are asphalt. In cars, you need roads. Or cars useless. And most of our roads are asphalt. So asphalt, it's, it's at the heart of the United States. Bombs abroad, cars at home. 
Yeah, but it, it speaks to ideas that uh, we're going to touch on, including like sanitiz- uh, sanitizing uh, neighborhoods, segregation, and uh, development of uh, uh, or changes in the built environment and, and uh, urban transformation. Um, so let me just move on to the next question, although I could spend a lot more on the war effort. Um, asphalt paving it appears from your history, has been used as a material that could sanitize the city, um, i.e. making it easier to remove dust and germs, or making it easier for new forms of transportation, namely the bike and automobile. That has also become a a tool used uh, for slum clearance, which is really primarily removal of black and brown families from the neighborhoods and a further segregation and ghettoization of the urban environment. Could you speak on the materials part in the urban history of America? All right. The, well, the good news first. And the good news is, yeah, a- asphalt is one of the factors that increased life expectancy. In other words, nations, the USA and any other nation that has a high percentage of paved streets and roads, highways, uh, generally has a better life expectancy than nations with, with that don't happen. So asphalt is one of the things, and there are others, of course, obviously, but one of the things that helps increase life expectancy, and you can document that with demographic uh, data um, after we started paving city roads in the 1890s, early uh, 1900s. Um, for example, uh, and this is hard to conceive, but one of the big uh, sources of pollution uh, before cars took over, and of course cars caused their own type of pollution, but was horses and horse, you know, horse droppings, you know, liquid and solid, and dead horses. And horses often, when they when they died, they just stay where they laid. And so you have all these horse droppings, you have dead horses on city streets, and all that. All right, now removing ho- dead horses—that's one thing, but cleaning up pollution in an unpaved road is almost impossible. It's very, very difficult. But cleaning up pollution on a paved road is just much easier. You can, uh, you know, you can basically hose things down. Is that a perfect way to clean up pollution? You know, horse droppings and whatnot and garbage in the street? No, but it's a lot easier to clean it up on a paved road. And by the way, a trivial point, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, back in the late 1890s, the New York City mayor at the time offered Teddy Roosevelt the job of sanitation commissioner for New York City. And at the time, there's a big uh, push toward, you know, improving health and, may- and waging war on disease. And the germ theory of diseases is arising at this time. And it became a big uh, theme of the whole progressive movement. And Teddy Roosevelt, he turned that down. He, he took the post of... Um, New York City Police Commissioner instead to clean up corruption, you know, dirt of a different kind, right? Political corruption in the police. All right, so that's the good news. Asphalt can help sanitation. It can reduce what? The spread of disease through bacteria and viruses. But again, there's always the, you know, the the, the good and the bad. Um, Asphalt facilitates what the rise of the automobile, and the automobile creates a different form of pollution, right? CO2 pollution, uh, what they call in Los Angeles smog, right? All right. Um, in what was the other half of your question? So, uh, 
but it's also used um, for slum clearance, or oh yeah, it, okay, it becomes yeah. A, a part in segregation yeah, yeah, of the urban yeah. environment. Yeah, a- asphalt. It, if you imagine, you see it in your head like a checkerboard. Asphalt helps draw very defined lines, and segregation needs defined lines. It needs borders. This is where the black people live. This is where the white people live. This is where the Mexican-Americans live. This is where the Native Americans live. All right. Now, the big example of uh, using pavement uh, to basically uh, urbanize, or not urbanize, revitalize American cities is interstate highway construction. And there, the asphalt story is mixed because interstate highways are more than they're about 60% concrete, only about 40% asphalt. Uh, so that's a little bit mixed. But interstate, high, interstate highway construction across the country has two hooks. One, it's, it's hooked to the Cold War and militarization again. And again, pavement is always hooked to militarization. And so you, interstate highway construction, what's the, the logic there? Well, you need to move troops around in case there's a war. You need to move soldiers and their equipment around. You need to do that fast. So we build the interstate highways. And the other thing is, if there's a nuclear war, you need to evacuate the cities. You need to get people out of the cities so they don't get massacred, you know, and die by the millions in hydrogen bomb attacks. So you have that. You have that military angle with interstate highway construction. But that really tragic thing about interstate highway construction is uh, many of the nation's mayors saw interstate highway construction as a way uh, to facilitate what they called slum clearance. And so they routed, the mayors demanded that interstate highways get routed through the poor areas of the cities. And those areas were often um, African-American and sometimes um, Mexican-American. And there's a saying, uh, some of the activists who opposed uh, highway construction to the cities, they called it white man's roads through black men's homes. And so you had a a lot of displacement, right? But you also had, uh, it kind of backfired on urban mayors because by routing interstates right through cities, that facilitated the decline of America's cities. It allowed people to move out, people who had money, middle-class people, people who had union jobs. It allowed them to move out. They could live 20 miles away from a factory in a city now and be there in 20 minutes because of the interstates. And, of course, eventually the, the factories and the warehouses and the jobs, they moved out to the suburbs too. And so this was just an absolute disaster. And asphalt pavement and concrete pavement, um, they they – they were tools in that because, again, you don't have interstate highway construction without um, pavement. And so, and it, this is just uh, a, a story we're, we're starting to reverse now. And some cities are actually removing freeways that go through um, cities. And, and by the way, it's not just uh, interstate highway construction. Robert Moses, the New York City Parks Commissioner, that was one of bi- his big things, is uh, building um, 
highways, and he was pretty uh, straightforward about the impact that that would that it would have on African Americans in New York and all the boroughs in New York, not just Manhattan. And so this road construction, you know, it can be good. It can get you to a hospital faster, right, and get you to work. But it has environmental and socioeconomic impacts that um, often were not considered. And part of the reason those uh, environmental and socioeconomic adverse impacts are not considered, whether it's Robert Moses planning uh, freeways, you know, the Cross Bronx Expressway and the Long Island Expressway in New York, or it's the Eisenhower administration with the grand plan to build, well, the biggest public works project in history, interstate highway construction. The people doing all that, from Eisenhower to Robert Moses and the members of the advisory committees, which were from the real estate industry and the asphalt industry and the concrete industry and the service station industry, the reason none of those people considered environmental and socioeconomic impacts is the people who were who would raise those issues, they were often the targets of McCarthyism in the late 40s and 18th, in late 1940s and early 1950s. And so if you're, you're a sociologist, you're an urban geographer, and you say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do this. Well, you might get fired from your job because you're, you're considered to be a communist. And so the type of trained people who could raise environmental and socioeconomic concerns. That's exactly the type of person most likely to have been purged and blacklisted during the McCarthy era. And so asphalt comes at at that too, through the back door. And I think that's what's so fascinating about your work is how you show these interdependencies uh, inter, uh, between uh, the political, racial situation uh, and uh, the material uh, of asphalt and how asphalt becomes a, a, a material where all these uh, human uh, ideas about segregation or movement or defense uh, or, or simply capitalism is, in a lot of ways um, are, are played out or it manip- it manipulates the, the material. Um, and yeah, yeah. You use asphalt to to build nations. You use asphalt to build empires. But asphalt itself is, you know, it's just a, a thing. It's a substance. Asphalt doesn't do anything. It's what people do with asphalt, and not just people. What nations do with asphalt. What uh, what empires do with asphalt. Whether it be uh, people with imperial ambitions in ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, or people with imperial ambitions in the 21st century. And, and again, not everybody remembers an asphalt devotee. I guess Stalin loved asphalt. Hitler hated it. Okay. That's fascinating. Uh, and so uh, let, let me move to my next question. Um, in several instances, but both during World War II and either further back temporarily uh, in ancient Egypt and in, Los, uh, in, in 20th century Los Angeles, asphalt has been used to bury secrets and in particular pave over atrocities, specifically thinking about um, uh, the Chavez Ravine and 
in World War II, the paving was the material uh, to hide uh, the Holocaust against Jews uh, across Europe. Yeah, and, and you can hide things in the ground. We all know that, right? When we're little kids, we read Robert Louis Stevenson, right? And Treasure Island and all that. The pirates are burying treasure. And so you can hide things underground. And uh, so you bury them. And asphalt, it adds an extra layer of, uh, of protection. And so what can you hide underground? You can hide atrocities. And, and the Nazis often did that. Uh, you can hide... Uh, what once was, an example I, I use in the book, uh, building Dodger Stadium and then paving the parking lots. Uh, what's underneath those parking lots? A, a school where children once went. And so they just uh, basically bulldozed a, na- a neighborhood in Los Angeles, Chavez Ravine, and drove the people out and paved it over with roads leading into parking lots for Dodger Stadium. And so the, the stuff that's paved over... Uh, the, the builders might not give it a second thought. So when they bury a school under a Dodger Stadium parking lot, they, you know, that didn't even occur to them that's good or evil. That's just, you just do it. Whereas the Nazis, when they pave over atrocities, yeah, they're, they're trying to, to hide it. But there's another thing that can be paved over too, and it's called capping with the C, C-A-P, capping. And you can pave over pollution. You bury uh, pollution in the earth and you put an asphalt cap over it. And that's one of the most common ways we in the USA that we deal with pollution. Uh, we, we just bury it and we pave, pave it over. And asphalt's not completely waterproof, but it's waterproof enough and that it can, you know, prevent things from bubbling up to the, to the surface. And really high, uh, uh, really, really dangerous pollutants, you know, uh, nucleoids and things, you know, from nuclear power plants and atomic bombs and high, you know, thermal nuclear bombs. We have really sophisticated ways of um, dealing with that. But if you look at it, it's really not that sophisticated. You just bury them extra deep. And then the, uh, the shaft leading down to the burial chamber where you put nuclear waste, uh, you just have five or six different things to plug that shaft and prevent leakage. And almost always asphalt is one of those things. And so whether you're simply burying over a, um, a waste from, like in the book, I use an example of something called, believe it or not, nuki, nuki poo. And that was a, a re- nuclear reactor in Antarctica and it was leaking. So it was a danger. And so they, uh, the Navy dismantled it. And then, you know, ship the parts here and there for safe disposal. But a lot of the stuff, the, the soil around that plant uh, was used as fill. And then they covered the fill with asphalt. Now it's a parking lot. And underneath the parking lot is soil from a uh, leaking nu- nuclear reactor in Antarctica. And so covering things up, you can cover, you can bury things and pave over them with asphalt cover up crimes. You can pave over things just because they're inconvenient. You know, this school is in the way. We need to put a parking lot here. So let's just bury it and pave it over. And you can also use asphalt to to control pollution. Now, that's not a perfect way of remediating pollution, but it sure is way better than, than nothing. 
And by the way, where I live right here in, now in Milwaukee in the Bayview neighborhood, there's a, a coal field not that far from my house. And there's just, you know, tons and tons of coal ash. And how do they keep that from polluting things? It's cover it with dirt. And so they have a dirt and earth cap. What's one step up from just covering something with dirt? You put asphalt on top of the dirt. Okay. And a lot, and again, a lot of this stuff is, is really pretty, if you think about it, it's not, it's pretty primitive way of con- controlling uh, pollution. Pretty much everybody remembers Sh- Chernobyl in, in Ukraine in the nuclear plant uh, meltdown. And to this day, uh, asphalt pavement is one of, if not the, one of the primary ways of containing, continuing uh, danger from fallout radioactivity from that plant because it can blow up into the atmosphere and move around the world with wind currents. And so they pave it. And how do you keep the dust down, which can be radioactive? They just take hoses and keep the pavement wet. They keep it wetted down. But what's the primary way of controlling it? radioactive waste in Chernobyl? Maybe it's asphalt. And asphalt can dry out and you can have dust. So what do you do? You, you keep it wet. You hose it down. And that's not a whole lot different what the, what they did with uh, horse droppings and horse horse carcasses, you know, 120 years ago in the streets of New York City. You pave and then you can hose everything down. Very true. Uh so, could you speak some on the environmental impact of oil sands production, its transportation, and the byproducts that are produced to get higher grades of oil? And how does our continued use of asphalt assist in the green revolution? Is the second part of the question. All right. Let me do the second part first. Asphalt, of all the fossil fuels, is pretty much the only one that's actually a car. I mentioned this earlier. It functions as a carbon sink. And so if you pave a road, the road, you're not intending to burn the road. And so you're not releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. And so you're you're hacking or melting a fossil fuel out of the ground or you're producing oil in a refinery and what's left over, you're using it to produce something that will never burn. So it, it functions as a carbon sink. Now, are there better uh, carbon sinks and asphalt roads? Yeah, there's research being done right now uh, to, you know, to like use recycled materials to produce paved roads rather than a fossil fuel like asphalt, for example, plastic, plastic roads. But we're a long way from making that happen. There's also research in terms of making uh, every inch of pavement in the U.S. and the world, a de facto solar panel. And as we all know, if it's you know 90 degrees out and the sun's out, you're not going to be standing barefoot on an asphalt road because its temperature might be 140, 160 degrees. So the asphalt captures a lot of energy in its pavement form. And so there's potential there for the, for the green revolution. And by the way, uh, uh, the concrete industry is doing the same thing. Because to produce asphalt, uh, even in a refinery, it's a byproduct of oil refining. And so in in that sense, the production of asphalt doesn't really produce any pollution. It's the production of gasoline that produces the pollution. But for concrete, you need cement. 
and cement, you need kiln, kiln firing at really ridiculously high temperatures. And so cement production, and cement is the binder for concrete, is a huge pollutant in the world. It's just absolutely gigantic. It's off the charts. And so in that sense, asphalt is far more green than concrete. Asphalt pavement, far more green than concrete pavement. All right. So that's the good news, sort of. The bad news there, of course, is the more you pave, the more likely you are to have flooding because you're reducing floodplains, you're reducing the ability of water to get back into the ground where it belongs. And so when you have hurricanes, they're much worse now than they were before the pavement age. And remember, most pavement is asphalt. Most roads are asphalt. Most parking lots are asphalt. Most tennis courts, most driveways, most roofs, asphalt shingles, at least in North America. So, you know, that's the, the good news and the bad news. Now, with the tar sands, it's basically all bad news. And the tar sands create enormous environmental issues because, first of all, you have to mine the tar sands. Well, there are two ways of actually extracting the tar sands or oil sands or natural asphalt or bitumen, whatever you want to call it. And one way is to mine it with gigantic shovels and gigantic dump trucks where a single tire on one of these dump trucks might be twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars and the trucks are so big, uh, one driver said it's like uh, trying to steer a house while peering out a tiny bathroom window. And some of those giant dump trucks today, um, they, they're driverless. They're driven by software, by robots. But in any event, when you're mining this stuff, you're creating the enormous environmental destruction in the biggest uh, arboreal forest in North America up in Canada, in Alberta. And so that's a problem. And also, once you mine asphalt or melt it out of the ground, either way, you got to clean it up. Essentially, an image is like you got to put it in a washing machine. And that's just an image. That's not literally true. But in effect, it's just pretty true. You got to clean it. And that produces a tremendous amount of liquid waste. And so you need... uh, many, many barrels of water to produce just one barrel of synthetic crude oil or diluted um, dilbit, dilbit, that means uh, diluted bitumen. You you dilute uh, the tar sands with chemicals. And so to get the tar sands in shape so you can pump them through pipelines down from Canada through Wisconsin and then down to refineries and and oil tank farms in Illinois and elsewhere, you got to wash that oil to get the garbage out of it. That requires an incredible amount of water, many barrels of water for each barrel of of oil that are tar sands that is upgraded to synthetic crude oil or dilbit. And then what do you do with that water? Well, you can reuse it to a degree, but not indefinitely. And so you also have these gigantic tailing ponds in Canada because of the tar sands. And they're really dangerous to wildlife. All right. Now, what struck me even more than that is this. On our roads in America and across the world, asphalt roads function as a carbon sink. They're never to be burned. So they're not going to release CO2. 
But now we are upgrading in Canada natural asphalt mined, hacked, or melted out of the earth. We're upgrading that to synthetic crude oil and refining that into gasoline. And so if you're driving a car, the asphalt underneath your car wheels is serving as as a carbon sink. But your engine is burning natural asphalt upgraded to synthetic crude oil and gasoline, and that's a carbon bomb. And see that, in a nutshell, that's asphalt's duality nowadays with modern refineries. And modern refineries, they love uh, the type of um, um, fossil fuel you have in Canada in the tar sands, natural asphalt. Because for the modern refineries, they're built to maximize profits from, again, what the Koch brothers called garbage crudes, really thick, really heavy oil. And they don't want the type of oil that In theory, it's much more valuable, really light, sweet crude oil. They want really heavy, sour crude, and especially they want what they're getting out of Canada, Uh, synthetic crude oil and dill bit, right, which is asphalt upgraded. And by the way, where I live now, the the, the big pipeline in, in Canada, in Alberta, is called the Alberta Clipper. And once it gets to Sioux City, then it comes into uh, um, other pipelines and like a million barrels of this stuff comes right through uh, Wisconsin today. And it's very thick, it's very heavy, and it has to be heated a little bit or it can't move through pipelines. And it travels, by the way, uh, at a much slower rate through pipelines than conventional crude oil. And there have been spills of this stuff. And the most spectacular spill was in southwestern Michigan, uh, near where I went to high school. Uh, We moved out of New York, and I I went to high school in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And a bunch of Kalamazoo River uh, tributaries got polluted with a uh, natural asphalt spill, a pipeline spill. And then there's another risk of uh, spills because some oil pipelines uh, go under uh, the Straits at Mackinac. And, you know, so from Canada south, and you're moving then east and Lake Superior, Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, well, you have Mackinac Straits up there. And so we have oil pipelines underneath the Great Lakes too, now for only 20 miles. But if you get a spill there, it could pollute both Lake Michigan and Lake Huron. And we've had some issues with that. And pipelines, by the way, they can be, whether they're, carrying conventional oil or they're carrying synthetic crude oil or dill bit. And those last two, again, that's natural asphalt. Pipelines underwater can be damaged by uh, ship anchors. And there's a big story right now about what to do about uh, 20 miles of pipeline that goes underneath uh, this Mackinac Straits connecting uh, Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. What to do about 20 miles of pipeline that is not in good shape and it was built you know, 70 years ago. And the uh, pipeline company wants to build a, uh, a tunnel 100 feet beneath the, the lake bed in, in Mackinac Straits and encase it with concrete and make it big enough to, you know, to drive, you know, trucks through. And so if there are issues with the pipeline, it can be fixed. And so moving that natural asphalt from Alberta to market in 
the U.S., other locations in Canada, or to the West Coast for shipment to China. It is a really complex story. And um, I had, you know, I've got a lot of, about that covered in the book, but it's, it's just talking about it for a few minutes, it's, it's kind of hard to explain. No, and I think the the book does a great job of laying out uh, the, the the current history uh, and uh, how it's uh, how oil sands uh, are are moved and and uh, its environmental uh, impacts and the the threats of oil spills. Um, and you think about the Great Lakes and it's a large freshwater reservoir. Um, you know the fear of an oil spill there is uh, is concerning, um, but finally, um, I, I kind of want to uh, move to the conclusion uh, where uh, the centrality centrality of asphalt in our contemporary uh, situation is brought up, and it, the way it holds memory. Uh, for the families of police violence and how it can be a medium for the spread of disease. Uh, we saw how asphalt tarmac is a space of transmission, uh, in particular with the spread of COVID-19. Um, or what you say at the end, uh, not only utility and profit, but life and death lie in the same black hole. Could you elaborate on this some? Yeah, yeah. Let's start with with disease. Yeah, paved roads, paved runways, you know, cars, Buses, trucks, airports, yeah, that allows a disease to to spread. But again, there's always duality in asphalt. And when Obama was president, we had this uh, major effort to contain an Ebola outbreak in Africa. But to contain that, we had to get our people there. We had to get, you know, scientists and other health workers from around the world there. We had to fly them in. And in order to do that, we had to uh, fix asphalt runways at the hotspot. And so pavement, yeah, it can allow, it can be like a super highway for disease, but it can also, as Obama, his administration demonstrated with the Ebola outbreak in Africa, pavement can help also contain the spread of a disease. So there's always, you know, two ways going. What I was trying to get at in that in that last chapter is uh, asphalt is so much a part of our built environment that asphalt is almost quite literally where we live and where we die. And you can see that in like in, in that almost mundane way in uh, a lot of people. And again, we're all going to die, right? But a lot of us, we're going to die at home. And if you're going to, in North America, that means you're going to die under uh, asphalt shingles on your roof. Or you might die in a hospital. And if you die in a hospital, you're going to die on that, probably under a roof that gets uh, mopped with hot asphalt once or twice a year. So you're going to die under asphalt. And then on a more dramatic level, uh, so many of us, us being human beings, we die not under asphalt, but on asphalt. And you know, one of the th- stories I, I, I tell briefly in the book, uh, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia, and he had this, this tremendous, uh, you know, life. Now, he's empire, right? Imperialism and it's good and bad, but it's still a spectacular life any way you look at it. And he survived all that, but he he didn't survive a motorcycle crash. He was trying to avoid two boys riding bicycles. And so 
Lawrence of Arabia survived what he survived in the Mideast, but he didn't survive a blacktop death on a road in England. And so traffic deaths, traffic injuries, pedestrian deaths, they're off the charts. And then also, uh, if you look at individual cases, much in the news today, police shootings and things like that, uh, they our streets, our roads are almost all asphalt, way over 90%. And so someone's going to get shot. Uh, they're probably going to bleed out on an asphalt road. Um, right now, just 40 miles away from where I am right now, there's a big trial regarding a teenager who was, uh, showed up at a Black Lives Matter protest, a teenager who showed up at a Black Lives Matter protest with an AR-15 and strutted around and blah, 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 and ended up firing eight rounds. Some of the rounds didn't hit anybody, but they almost hit some people. And some of the rounds did hit people. He killed two people and he wounded a third. All right, so where did those people bleed out on? I haven't checked it out for sure, but it, I'm, I bet a nickel they bled out on an asphalt parking lot and an asphalt street. And so, so many of uh, our deaths occur on asphalt, and it could be roads, traffic accidents, it could be shootings, and again, what, 35,000 Americans a year, handgun deaths. And a lot of our, you know, the spectacular cases that make the uh, the news occur. That other trial in Georgia, I mean, that that was that a blacktop road? I don't know. I didn't, you know, because that came out after my book, so I didn't check it out. But I guess I would bet it is. And so the three good old boys in pickup truck ran down a black jogger and shot him. And where did he bleed out? So, again, um, we live our lives on and under asphalt, and we often die on or under asphalt. But again, the duality is, I mentioned this up front, you have a heart attack, and if you can get to the hospital in 20 minutes, you're going to live. If it takes you 30 minutes, you're going to die. And so if you live in an area where there's a paved road, you're probably going to live. And if you live in an area where the road is not paved, you're not going to get to the hospital in time and you're going to die. And so asphalt, it, again, it, it's the duality is just overwhelming. And that's what really struck me in in, in this book. No, I agree. Uh, and the imagery uh, throughout where you kind of describe, you know, walking, you could walk across Dodger Town today in Chavez Ravine and you don't even think about the school that was there, the homes or lives or the asphalt surface where Michael Brown or uh, Amar yeah. uh, Arbery were shot. Uh, yeah, and, and Michael the, Brown, the, the, the family wanted pieces of the asphalt with his blood on it. And, exactly. and, the, and the city gave them to him. And the, the city made a, Ferguson, Missouri, they made a, a point, the city spokesperson, that not one taxpayer dying was spent doing this. In other words, making sure the Brown family got a piece of the asphalt containing his blood. Because when he's shot, he falls and he bleeds out. And so you have blood-soaked asphalt. Right. And the, the way that the asphalt holds the memory. Um, That's correct. Yeah, very good. I wish so, I, had, I used that phrase in the book, holds the memory. I didn't do it. I, I created that image, though. 
Yes. The phrase, yeah. Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, so I, uh, the final question is kind of, you know, towards the historian. Um, and how, or the method, methodology of a historian, and I know we've gone on a bit, but if you could briefly discuss uh, the various sources you use and the archives that made this text possible. Yeah, well, well that that is kind of a tough one. And the reason that's a tough one is, is asphalt is so taken for granted that doing archival research is not especially productive. I mean, it is, it's, it's productive if you're an engineer or you're a chemist, but if you're a political historian, environmental historian, it's, it's not that productive. For example, I found a few things in the Roosevelt papers, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the Eisenhower papers, the Harry S. Truman papers, um, but not as much as I expected I would. Uh, Eisenhower especially because of the interstate highway construction. But other presidential libraries, and, that, and that's one of my things. I always go to presidential libraries. Um, just not as much as I thought. Although I did find some really inter- interesting stuff in the Herbert Hoover Library. Um, and Herbert Hoover, by the way, he, he saw road construction as a way to get a public works job creating juggernaut. You know, asphalt paving is a job-creating juggernaut. And you wouldn't really, you know, associate that with Herbert Hoover, right? So I thought that was kind of fascinating. But again, I was a little bit surprised they didn't find more in presidential libraries. But then I thought, well, well, that's not really that surprising at all. Because everybody tends to take asphalt for granted other than the engineers and the chemists. Um, the Cochran family papers, that was kind of interesting because he's one of the first true asphalt barons. And uh, Lord Cochran was, uh, I got his history in the book. Napoleon called him a sea wolf. He was a captain in the British Navy, or a, a, a captain, virtually admiral eventually. And he fought in the Napoleonic Wars. So he's a big deal. And in Trinidad, he, uh, he had all these plans to uh, an experiment with the asphalt lake in Trinidad and make him godzillion dollars. So his story was fascinating. And his papers, uh, I looked at his papers, um, archival papers, and Henry Kaiser. Um, and Kaiser, Henry Kaiser, you know, he, he founded like 50 different companies. Uh, Kaiser Permanente today is much in the news, right? Just a big, I think they just settled a big uh, labor dispute with their healthcare workers. But he started out in the asphalt business. And he said, you know, all you really need in the construction business is a, is a wheelbarrow and a bucket and a rubber hose. But he started out as a paver. And then eventually he uh, built so many of our ships during World War II, uh, especially Liberty ships. And asphalt had a story there, too, because the Liberty ships used asphalt to jerry-rig armor for Liberty ships, you know, to protect against enemy um, uh, fire. And uh, because of uh, rationing in World War II, they didn't have enough steel for armor, so they used asphalt to, to, to make basically plastic armor. And so Kaiser was a, a big deal there, too. So I looked at his papers. Uh, but again, uh, archival research was not, you know, real, real productive. Um because, uh, again, asphalt is just, is just taken for, for granted. Now, I know I'm not perfect. I, I probably overlooked, uh, I went to maybe, I 
researched maybe 25 different archives and I probably overlooked a few and I might even overlook a, a key one and nobody's perfect, but I hope I didn't. Now, so where did I get the, uh, the rest of the research? By, for example, you asked questions about uh, asphalt and military history. So once I discovered that asphalt is a, is a big tool of warfare, a, a big tool of nation state building, a big tool of imperial building, whether in the ancient world or in the modern world, then I just started researching war. So, for example, the Vietnam War, I read all I could about the Vietnam War, and um, I looked for anything regarding pavement, runways, and things like that. And by the way, with the Vietnam War, I found a lot of interesting stuff. But when I researched the war in Iraq, I was shocked to find that one of my fellow graduate students had written a couple books for the Army Corps of Engineers about the use of asphalt in the... um, um, war in Iraq. Now, the books weren't just on asphalt, but that was a, a theme in her book. And so when I researched the war in Iraq, the second war, well, actually both wars uh, under both President Bush's, um, I was surprised to find I, I'm getting a good source of information from one of my fellow graduate students, you know, back in the day. So again, what I would do is I would look at the topics that I thought were germane, might be germane to an asphalt story, like ancient Babylon. Didn't they use asphalt to make bricks? And so I started researching about ancient Babylon. Didn't uh, the army use asphalt to pave runways? Yeah, so I started researching the military history of America's wars. Um, Flooding, hurricanes, flooding. Uh, Doesn't water run off parking lots and roads and roofs? Doesn't that exacerbate flooding? So I started researching uh, hurricanes and historic floods, you know, whether it be Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Harvey or the great Mississippi River flood of the 1920s. So it's kind of like an inside out way of of doing the research. I look where where asphalt is important and then I research those topics searching for asphalt-centric uh, clues. Yeah, and it, it comes across in the text. And uh, in particular, I think the Army Corps of Engineer uh, pieces really helped uh, uh, describe and uh, go into detail about the uh, its connection both here in the U.S. Uh, yeah. or uses in the U.S. and abroad. Yeah. And not only the Army Corps of Engineers, but also Navy Seabees. Right. Yeah. Construction, uh, so, construction workers. Yeah. Yep. And so with that, uh, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time, but uh, may I ask uh, to, as a conclusion, uh, what are you working on now? Yeah, I'm working on a, a book called tentatively entitled Milk Wars about the, the dairy farmer and the, the American dream. Um, and here, I got I got the idea here just from some visual images in that the Chicago Tribune ran a story um, about a year ago mentioning um, the conflict o- over milk and I just saw a photograph of, you know, people rioting in the streets. So I'm thinking, why are people rioting over milk? 
So I started looking at that and decided, boy, that's a good story. And and I just cast it as milk wars, because if you go to the beginning of how human beings began uh, consuming milk past infancy, um, we really had to go to war with our own DNA, because all mammals consume milk in infancy, human beings and all other mammals. But we are the only mammal, human beings, that can consume milk past infancy, but most of us can't. You know, that's the whole lactose tolerance, lactose intolerance debate. So once I saw these uh, people rioting on the streets of Chicago, a photograph, I just thought, well, what kind of conflicts do we have over milk? And they could, they could go way back. And our first conflict is with DNA. Our second conflict is with uh, once the cities start growing with bacteria, because we don't remember this, but drinking milk was once dangerous. You know, you put your life in your hands because, you know, before pasteurization. And then as I got more into it, boy, there are lots of other conflicts. And so who's involved in the milk war stories? You know, dairy farmers and you know, the, 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 the giant processors, you know, who process milk and milk products. And, but also gangsters, organized crime, the Teamsters, labor unions, uh, environmental activists, global warming, including global warming activists. Dairy has a role in that. The Nixon administration had a, a gigantic milk fund scandal uh, involving corruption with dairy cooperatives. Um, and that was part of the, uh, the Nixon administration, what John Mitchell called the White House horrors. Watergate is what everybody focuses on, but there are a lot of other Nixon scandals. And one of the biggest involved milk. So I thought, wow, this is a, a great topic. And the bottom line is you, you have to have fun doing your research. It has to engage you. Uh, otherwise, it's just torture. And so I thought, yeah, this, this can engage me. And by the way, I get into asphalt and now milk because I do political history. But as I said earlier, there's just so much competition in political history with the rise of the Internet. There are fewer book publishers on the one hand, but... Now there are just a, a godzillion uh, blogs and websites that do political history. And so for me to do political history, I needed new angles. And so I thought asphalt, that's a new angle for me. And milk, the milk story, milk wars, that's a new angle for me. Very fascinating, uh, Dr. O'Reilly. Uh, and it sounds like a great project. I'm very much looking forward to seeing it when it's out. Maybe we can have you back. Uh, and I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was fun. I, I, I enjoyed it. I hope the barking dog didn't distract too much. Oh, no problem. <laughs> don't worry about that. Well, thank you, and uh, take care. Okay, and send, don't forget to send me the link. because I'll. I'll-